Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. Last but not least, tomorrow uh, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Amen? It's incredible. Our nation has been marked by the, the civil rights movement and people who have pressed in under the unction of God's spirit to fight for the rights and the freedoms and the equities of all people. And unfortunately, our nation has seen a lot um, over the past couple hundred years of oppressing certain peoples based on their skin color and what they seem to be able to offer to people in a majority culture. Uh, And we just want to say as a church that when we are called to the gospel and to the kingdom of God, that walking to be people who crush oppression and who lift up the oppressed and who fight on behalf of those who aren't living in equity is a part of the gospel movement. It is a part of the gospel movement. I want to read these two beautiful quotes from Dr. King this morning. These are both from letters from Birmingham jail. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or the extension of justice? Beautiful. Another, all too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. I read that and I felt conviction. That too often we have stayed behind the safety of our churches and our religious beliefs at the expense of those who are being oppressed and limited and held out. Uh, and so if you're here today and you're a person of color, we just want to say thank you for being here. Uh, and also for all of us, whether you're from a majority or minority culture, that it is kingdom work to lean in and to love the least of these and to lift up the heads of any person who is struggling. Amen? Amen. Okay. Uh, let me read this passage of scripture because sometimes we, we uh, have a hard time marrying Bible to everything that we're talking about. This is out of Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. Amen? This is what he calls us to. And so today we honor Dr. King. We honor uh, the civil rights movement in general, and, uh, and all of you who've been a part of just loving people who are in need. Amen? All right, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Matthew 4.1. We're continuing in our series uh, in the wilderness with Jesus as our community walks through the season of fasting and focused prayer. We've been talking about it in terms of consecration and being set apart to God. Uh, And today I want to read the first test that Jesus faces in Matthew 4. And we're going to cover some ground in three separate parts this morning. We're going to talk about the story, the test, and battling independence. So, will you join me right now as we stand for the reading of the word? Matthew 
Daniel, you want to read it? Yes. <laughs> Surprise. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. You can be seated. Part one, the story. Every single family has famous stories, don't you? I, I could tell you my family's story of how my twin brother and I were conceived six weeks apart in the womb and how after that period of time we were born and my twin brother was six weeks premature because of the six weeks conception issue and how he came in premature and he couldn't get, go home. He stayed in the hospital after November 1st, and he stayed there until the day before Thanksgiving when God heard the prayer cries of my mom and dad, and we had the best Thanksgiving ever. All of us came home. It's famous. For our family, it's this like hinge point we come back to year after year. Every Thanksgiving, it comes up in story time. And others have famous stories that turn infamous. And Israel is one family just like that. The family of Israel was marked by this incredible moment when God leads them up out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he miraculously brings them through the waters of the Jordan, and he leads them into the wilderness to deliver them to the promised land. But those of you who know the story know that when God tells them to enter into the land and to take it, they rebelled against him out of fear and anxiety and skepticism, and, they, and God actually delivers them back into the wilderness for 40 years to be tested, and where all but two died. Wow. It's part of their family story. A famous story turned infamous. And so as we read Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it's important to see that the testing of Jesus um, isn't chapter 1 in a new story, but it is the climax of Israel's story, and it is the climax of the human story. This, this that we read today is the climax of your story and mine and every person who has gone before us. In fact, this entire narrative is full of these hyperlinks to the story of Israel. And so as we read that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days, what are the Jews hearing? That's our story. Hold on a second. You're telling me that somebody else shares the same story? They're retelling our story. And so we aren't just reading about Jesus who faced this difficult season in a one-off difficult moment. We are reading an announcement that what God had intended to do through Israel to be a kingdom of priests who would live under God's blessing in order to bless all the nations of the world, which, by the way, is what we're called to do, right? First Peter says that we are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. He's calling us to be a holy priesthood so that we will also, in the same way that Israel was called, and through the anointing of Jesus, that we will be a blessing as we obey God's commands, and we will bless the nations. Amen? And that what, what God intended for Israel, now he's accomplishing through Jesus. That is what we're reading this morning. And what he intends to do in and through us is only possible because of the obedience and the sacrifice of Jesus. 
The, the reason that we lift our voices and I dance like a fool in here on Sunday morning and we lift our hands and we praise with our guts is that his obedience and sacrifice will be rewarded. That he has purchased something for us through what he did. And you and I can give back to him in such a tremendous way, man, as we worship. It says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Not just because he likes retelling stories, but to succeed where Israel and all of us have failed. Now, why does this matter so much for us? Because both Jesus and Israel stand as examples to teach us how to be faithful in the face of testing. How many of you feel like you're being tested in this season? I feel like there's a trial, there's a test, there is something that I'm going through that God is walking me through and he's not delivering me from. In fact, maybe he's leading me through it, right? And any one of us can look at the wrong way to live. We can look back at Israel's example and find the ways to disobey time and time again. But Jesus shows us the right way, right? 1 Corinthians 10, the apostle Paul points to them, points to Israel, and he says, hey, listen to the purpose here. These things happened to Israel as examples, and they were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Be careful that you don't fall. My, my brother reminded me that years ago I was ice skating beside his wife when we were on a family vacation, and I was berating her for how awesome I was at ice skating and how she was lousy. And that very moment, I turned around and I just landed dead on my face. I was bruised up. Yeah. Be careful that you don't fall. You think your feet are sure. God points back to this example of Israel to cause us to understand. Why? Because verse 13, he says, no temptation, no testing. Listen to the language. No testing has overtaken you except what's common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted and tested... He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. What's he saying? This story, we're seeing Jesus come and retell the story because both Israel and Jesus are examples and warnings to us. Israel is a warning and Jesus is an example about what it means to be obedient and faithful under the weight of testing. He teaches us the art of resisting temptation and enduring. And spoiler alert. He actually empowers us by his victorious spirit to be obedient in the very places where Israel failed. I don't know if you've ever gotten there. You get to this place of testing or temptation and you feel like, man, I am so weak. I don't know if you have felt that. I would come into these moments in my own life of tempting and, test and testing and feel like I just had no strength, no power to bring into the fight. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But through the victorious spirit of Jesus, I have the son of heaven, filling my mortal body to be able to say no to the wrong and yes to the right. I have a full arsenal at my disposal that goes far beyond just my own strength. And that's good news. Amen? So part two, the test. Imagine this morning that someone approaches you and lets you know that it's actually been discovered that you are royalty. You're a prince. You're a prince, man. You're a princess. Like all this time you didn't know. And here's the promise. One day because of this new status, you're going to rule over everything you see. Let me ask you a question. How does that change you? 
It would be easy to just kind of slip off into entitlement or thinking more of ourselves than we ought or to think that somehow the rules don't apply to me any longer. This is all mine. I can do whatever I want, right? But the true test of royalty is whether or not we will act in service to others and submission to the king. Jesus has just been declared in Matthew 3, as we read last week, he's been declared the son of God in front of everybody. And the language God uses points to these two specific prophecies that clarify who he is and what he's called to do. Listen to what he says. He says, you are my son. This is directly tied from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 that you'll see on the screen. He says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So in this moment of baptism, what we hear is you're my son. And what Jesus hears is all of this. What all the Jews around the circle hear is all of this. This is not lost on Jesus and Jewish ears. God the Father just gave Jesus his identity and his destiny in a single phrase. You are my son. You're going to inherit everything. It's all yours. Right? This is who you are. This is what belongs to you. But then he goes on. With whom I am well pleased. This is the same language out of Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1 where he says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Same language. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. And so as ears hear with whom I am pleased, we may just hear that Jesus knows that God is clarifying his ultimate destiny and purpose. Here's who you are and here's what you must do. Because of who you are. So not only does he know this identity and destiny, he knows that the cross is the purpose and the path that God has given him to walk out. Now this is vital. This is vital for every single one of us. Because if you're told that you're the son and everything is yours, you might just begin to believe that you can do things however you like. You might just believe that you can make whatever decision you want independent of the father But Jesus knows that the only way to fulfill who he is is by being faithful to the purpose of God. To lay down his life in obedience to God's word. The identity and the inheritance are contingent on obedience. Are you with me? And in the same way as we celebrate being children of God, can I say to you this morning that your identity and your inheritance are contingent on your obedience? Now, now we have this beautiful, faithful God who even in my disobedience, I can confess and repent, which means I can I can recognize the sin or the brokenness and I can turn around and live contrary to that sinfulness. Repentance is not just a, a having a, a moment at the altar. Repentance is I change my life. I change the way that I think and live. Right. And so I don't want you to hear, man, I, I disobeyed. I'm out. I'm no longer a son. No, God's actually a God of covenant. He's a covenant-keeping God, which means that he makes a way for us even when we fail. But man, 
We are called to obedience, right? We are called to obedience. We love the new identity that God gives us. I, I cherish it. Saved and forgiven and redeemed son of God. The righteousness of God in Christ. You know he says these things about you? He says that you're going to inherit the kingdom and the earth? What? What? I, I was just trying to come to church. You're saying I get, I get all of this? Yeah. Yeah. But what we struggle with is to be faithful to what he's commanded. I, I love what he calls me. I love what he tells me about me. I, what I struggle with is submission to him. Obedience to someone else. Jesus says, if any person wants to come after me, if any person wants to claim me, if any person wants to call themselves a Christian, you know what the sign of a Christian is? That they will deny themselves. They will take up their crosses daily and they will follow. Oof. See, the path of obedience is what paves the way to the promise of God. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Notice the enemy's approach. He starts by calling into question Jesus's identity as a way to force his hand to prove himself. That, that's his approach. He says, you can have the identity inheritance without obedience to God. You are the son of God. Just do it your way. Just do things the way that you want to. You know, Satan will always call into question God's character and his word to lead you toward disobedience. When you hit a season of testing, you will quickly face the question, did God really say that? I stepped out in faith. Lord, were you really saying that? Or his character, right? In Genesis 3. Oh, well, God didn't really mean that. He just knows that you're going to be like him. The enemy likes to twist these ideas in our hearts and lives that when we hit places of testing and trial, we begin to question God's character and God's word, and those are the things that never change. Are you with me? That's why Hebrews says that the, the oath, the promise of God was based on his word and his name, two unchanging things, right? They don't shift. So what's the game that the enemy's playing? The enemy likes to leverage our hunger. He will take your weakness, that thing that you want most, to move you into a place of forcing a result in your own strength. Hear me? He, he will actually move to take that very thing that you lack in a season or in a moment that God knows that you need, that is still lacking, and you will actually try to force a result in your own strength instead of relying on the Lord. See, our hunger is meant to turn us to dependence on God, not rebellion against him. But the enemy will use your hunger and your lack to turn you to self-reliance and independence rather than trust in God. I will race ahead. Anybody run ahead of God? Man, I am chief of sinners, right? I feel this from the Lord. Instead of waiting, instead of like watching the Lord do something, like, God, let me help you. Let me help you get this started. I see this. If you have a prophetic leaning, you're in the room. Oftentimes you see things that aren't yet. It is a dangerous habit to see things that aren't yet and to feel that it is your position and power to force things to move forward. Are you with me? So if you have that kind of leaning, if, if the Lord shows you future things, if he gives you a sense about what's going on in somebody's life, it is 
um, it is a condemning thing to feel the movement of the Lord and then to feel like you're the one who needs to force everything forward. We have to learn how to wait. We have to learn how to trust him. We have to learn what it is to so rely on the Father that we take all the reliance off of ourself and our will and our preferences and pushing things forward in our own timing. Right? See, what's not shown here is that Jesus is fasting in response to the leading of the Spirit. Now, Grant, how can you know that? That's not in the Bible. Well, remember, he only does what the Father tells him. There's not a thing that Jesus does. There's no people around him. There's no meals he eats. There's no conversations he has. There's no places he travels to that aren't in the Father's will. Everything that Jesus says, the Father is saying, everything he does is what the Father told him to do. So here in this moment, Jesus is fasting in response to the Father's command, but it has left him with a need. You feel that? He's hungry. Have you ever been there? Have you been in the place where God calls you to do something and it leaves you hungry? And you have a choice to make. Will I, in my own strength and effort, try to fill this thing up? Or will I wait and trust him? You know, this takes wisdom because sometimes God doesn't answer things and needs because we're actually living in disobedience. And we say, where is God? Why isn't God showing up? You brought God in on the back end of that decision. This is not God's decision. Are you with me? And sometimes God doesn't answer the way that we think he should even when we've been obedient. Oof. So this takes wisdom and discernment. It doesn't, they're not one-to-one. Every situation doesn't operate the same. And so what do we do when God leaves us hungry for something we don't have and he's not providing it? So the enemy comes to Jesus and he exposes the need that he feels and he uses it to call his identity into question. Jesus, you're the son of God, man. He's not going to let you go hungry of all people. You're not going to go hungry. Use your authority to just make some bread. You know that he's given you the power to do it. You got this. What's the problem? God said he's going to take care of you. So clearly you can take care of yourself. Does that sound familiar? Clearly, you can step up to the plate. You can push a little bit. It's okay. God will bless whatever you do. That's the kind of language we adopt in those moments of pinching. Do you see his method? Satan actually hasn't said anything incorrect. Do you notice that? He doesn't say one thing that's incorrect. But he is twisting the truth by what is true. Those are two different things, the truth and what is true in a moment. See, it can be true in a moment that I don't have what I need, but the truth is that God will always provide for what I need. It can be true in a moment that I have not seen his hand in the way that I anticipated, but the truth is that God always shows up. His eyes never depart from the righteous. The enemy's twisting the truth by what is true. He tempts Jesus to act in independence of the Father and to do what he is capable of doing to meet his own needs instead of acting in uh, dependence on God and trusting him to provide. Now listen to that. The enemy tempts Jesus to do not what he's incapable of, but what he is capable of. Shoot. 
hey, I know that this has been a tough season. Why don't you just do this? I know that God's called you to do this kind of, this certain vocation. I know that it's really hard. Why don't you just go back to doing what you thought in the past? You know how to do that. Why don't you just slide back on into that? The enemy is a master at asking us, probing us, poking us to do the very things that we are capable of doing that will lead us to disobedience. You know, I think it's important to say, I had this revelation as I was reading a commentary this week, that the scriptures never tell us that Satan is in bodily form. Is, anybody, is that a shocker to anybody? Like when I read this, I always think Satan's there in body. Like there's two people in the wilderness. It's Jesus and it's Satan. It never says that. It doesn't mean that it can't happen. It just doesn't say that. What if, in fact, Jesus is facing all these through internal testing and tempting? Does that change the story for you at all? That the very thing you go through on a Monday when you're worn out and weary and the answer hasn't come and you're still abiding and leaning in in prayer, that that may be the very scenario that Jesus is facing? It's important. Friends, what happens in us when we step out in faith and we trust God and it creates a felt need in our lives? Do we fill it in ways that feel good or do we wait on the Lord? Do we try to meet our own needs independent of God's word and his leading? Right? God, God I've abstained from this thing in obedience, but I'm not sure you're going to come through for me now. Maybe I just need to put out my own feelers. Maybe I just need to start to step out. Surely you wouldn't leave me hungry. Oof. This passage is really testing because for all of us, we go through seasons where there is a lack or there is a, a space, a need. There is something that we are desperately hungry for, but there seems to be no bread, right? Those of you who've been waiting on spouses, we have an incredible community of singles in our church. Sometimes in that season of waiting and trusting that the Lord is going to bring the right partner along to walk with you to run with you, to do all the things that God has called you to, we can grow weary and say, I'll just date whoever. That guy's handsome. That girl's beautiful, right? Her Facebook profile really keeps me interested. <laughs> Clearly, this must be the Lord, man. No, no. That's your own appetite. See, what happens when we do that is we just kind of slide off and we lower our standards and we don't find someone who's going to run after God with their whole heart and trust the Lord. We just find the closest guy or girl to fit the job. And God is merciful. He's gracious. But that's dangerous. How about jobs? And we set our hearts on these jobs that are just going to fulfill everything. And then they don't come. Right? By the way, they don't exist. Jobs that fulfill everything. They're just like spouses, by the way, for all you single people. You think they're going to fulfill everything. They don't. The whole point is to point you to Jesus. Everything points us to Jesus. And I look and I look and I just can't seem to find it. Right? Or, or my dreams. I've got this dream in my heart that just keeps moving further and further away. It's here, but I just want it so badly. Do I force my way into it? I'm not saying you can't have some hustle in your life. I'm saying... We have to know where God is at work and where we're trying to put our hands on the wheel and control things. Our finances, having children, there's so many things. You know, one of the core tests that we face in life is independence from God and satisfying our own desires instead of trusting him to do it. 
So will I feed myself by my own means when God has asked me to wait and trust him? That's a core question out of Matthew 4, 1 through 4. Will I satisfy my own needs or will I trust that the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, sees me and knows me and he will satisfy every need that I have? Part three, battling independence. Verse four, Jesus answers Satan and he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. How does Jesus combat the test of independence and self-reliance? He, he doesn't do it with cultural ideologies. You only live once, right? Or FOMO or uh, whatever feels best for him. This is not like Jesus's, um, his everything that he wants and he desires and his preferences. He doesn't respond with his thoughts or his personal beliefs about what the Father would want for his life. Like, well, well I'm sure that the Father would want me happy, so I guess I could make some bread. No. God, is, God doesn't serve my happiness. God doesn't serve your happiness. We serve his pleasure. Jesus responds with the scriptures. Notice this. When he is tested to provide for himself, the artillery that Jesus uses to fight the enemy is the word of God. When you are tested and tempted, guess what is the biggest weapon in your arsenal? The word of God. It is the biggest. I, I can't tell you the number of times when I have woken up and felt so like depressed or anxious and I've gotten in the car and realized this thing wants to crush me. I don't know if this is a spirit or just me, but either way, it can't stay. And I go to quoting. Right? In love, you predestined me to be adopted as your son. I have everything I need for life and godliness. I have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Are you with me? That I've been set apart and made holy to you. Some of you just like live in like this is my depression and my anxiety. If you find yourself saying my, you need to kill that pet. Right? Put it down. This is my, my, my. Put it down. And take up the word of God that teaches us a better truth. It doesn't mean that you always feel like it. It means that I'm anchoring myself and I'm building my life on something that is deeper and firmer than me. It's the eternal word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not the word. Are you with me? So when we face this testing and difficulty uh, and even easy days, Jesus says that the most driving need of our lives is to know what God is saying over you. He, he quotes out of Deuteronomy 8.3. What is God saying over you? you? You know the way that you are starving when you haven't eaten for a long time? Like that's the beauty of seasons of fasting is it points all of your urges and desires back to Jesus. That, that feeling when you are craving and you are so hungry. What if you understood that that craving was meant to be turned to him? So how can Jesus say something like this? That the driving need of my life is the word of God. More important than the air you breathe and the food you eat is God's words being spoken over your life today. Are we supposed to just sit around and pray and do nothing but wait? Is that what he means? Doesn't he know we're hungry? Doesn't he know that we don't have what we need? Yes, he knows. But God delights to provide for those who look to him. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Then everything else will be added to you. 
All those deep needs, all those deep wants, all those deep desires will be added to your life as you seek first his kingdom. You know, I love that in the face of this lack or this need, God answers with his name. Let me tell you what I mean. The first time that God begins to name himself in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 22. The heading over the passage, if you look in your Bibles, in fact, if you got them, you should turn there. Um, it just says, Abraham tested, right? That triggers all of us. Abraham tested. It's another hyperlink. And God asks Abraham in this passage, those of you who know it, to go up on the mountain and to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. You guys remember this story? And Isaac is the promise. He's the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants will be as countless as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham said, but I don't have a son. And so God gave him a son when he was 100. He might not show up in your time, but he does show up. Sarah was 99. And they had this beautiful baby boy. And Abraham says, there's the Lord's fulfillment. And then God says, I want you to take him to the mountain and kill him in honor of me. And it says, Abraham trusted the Lord and he did it. He took his son and he traveled through the wilderness and he is ascending the mountain and he ties his boy up, the fulfillment of this covenant promise, his connection to God. He ties his hands, puts him on the altar, pulls the knife out, and just before he kills him, the Lord calls out from, him, from heaven and he says, Abraham, don't touch him. Now I know that you are faithful to obey me. And it says that Abraham looks up and there in the thicket is a ram, a male lamb, caught. And he brings the lamb out and he sacrifices him in the place of Isaac. And right then, Abraham says, I'm going to rename this place. This is no longer the place of death for my son. This is Jehovah Yireh, Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Yireh, that God will provide. And they would say about this place on the mountain of the Lord, God will provide it. I was uh, listening to a message by Tyler Staten recently. He said that word for provide in the Hebrew, Yireh, is actually better. Like if you get back to the root of it, those Bible heads that are in here, if you get back to the root of it, it talks about the verb to see. It's less about provision, it's more about seeing. He said, so a better translation than God, our provider, is God will see to it. So Abraham's there, and God has just provided the sacrifice to meet the very need that he had. He didn't have it. He longed for it. He waited for it, and God gave it. Why? Because God will see to it. In the same way, God wants us to know that he is Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Yireh. God will see to it. And I wonder this morning... That in the place of our need and our testing, do you know that God is like that? Do you know that he is a tender father who sees every need? And when you live in obedience to him, he delights to meet that need. He delights to trust you. It's not always the answer that I want. It doesn't always come at the moment that I think it should. But God always responds to the need when it is needed. And you might not know that about him today. You might think, I'm in this world alone. 
I have to make decisions and I have to force things forward and I have no one who has my back or sees me or can follow up with me or can check on me or a safety net. Wrong. Because we know that God is the one who will see to it. They're like a little child who says, I'm hungry. There is a father who says, let me get you something, baby. Mom, I need this. I would love to buy that for you. God will see to it. Some of you have situations in your life this morning that you're trying to force in your own strength. You're doing it in independence because you believe he doesn't hear you. Whenever you live in obedience, God will see to it. He hears you. He sees you. His eyes are always on the righteous. He never departs from his people. You know, I want to close our time together with this simple thought. If Jesus is retelling Israel's wilderness story, where is the manna? Anybody else think about that? Why is Jesus hungry? Wasn't the story of Israel about a people who God miraculously provided for because they were his? Where's the manna? God gives the people heavenly bread to sustain them when they're in need. Satan even leverages that to poke a finger in Jesus' eye. If you're the son of God, bake some bread. All the other ingredients are there. So where is the bread? John chapter 6, verse 29. The Jewish people are asking Jesus for a sign to believe him. And look at what Jesus has to say. He answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And so they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do the will, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I am the bread of life. Verse 48. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Where is the manna? Where is the bread? He was there all along. The bread was there all along. Because this story of Jesus in the wilderness is not just about his testing and trial, but what we feed off of when we are in the wilderness. Are you with me? Our, our longing, we feel like we've just got to force things and fill our cravings, but he is there and he is the one who satisfies. Is it possible that Jesus is not just a means to get what I'm looking for, but he is the very substance of what I need? He is the bread that I want to fill up on. He is the bread of life. And when I eat from him... When I eat from him, I am filled with the eternal kind of life. This morning, maybe you have been eating all kinds of stuff that isn't the bread from heaven. Maybe you are filling up in your flesh on all sorts of things and cravings. And God wants to remind you that when you have a need, that he will see to it. And that he sees to it once and for all through his son, Jesus.
Jesus is the bread of life. He is the living bread. He is the bread that comes down from heaven. He is manna incarnate. He is the life and blessing of God that comes to feed us and fill us and transform us. And he will fill you up. But are you looking for that bread? And are you hungry? Will you stand to your feet? put on just some low music for us to pray to. I want to ask you a question this morning. Uh, what about you? Are you hungry? Maybe uh, in the course of this, there's a place of need in your life that's been exposed and you see how you've been trying to force your own way to the result. And God is calling you back to trust. He's calling you back to trust. That means putting your hands down relying on him, that the God who sees every need will fill you. He will see to it that all of your needs are met. And if that's you, I just want to invite you to come and to place that thing at the altar this morning. There's nothing special about this carpet in front, okay? But would you make an altar out of the space of this room? Sometimes we need to make a physical motion to surrender something to the Lord. I don't know why. It's just kind of the nature of things. I'm not trying to create a bunch of pressure for you. Roman, will you guys pull the lights down for me? But we want to create a space for an altar. There's something I'm holding. I'm trying to force my way. And God says, give it back to me. If that's you, come on. Perhaps this morning you've been waiting and growing impatient in an area and you have taken something into your own hands. The Lord's inviting you back to rely on him. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. We'll just lay it back at his feet this morning. You know, the passage that Jesus quotes out of in Deuteronomy 8, the whole point of it is this. He brings us into the wilderness places to humble us and test us, to cause us to hunger and feed us so that he can expose whether or not we will be obedient. Today, maybe you're under a test. There's a place of humbling in your life. And God's exposing whether or not you're going to trust him and be faithful to his word or you're going to push for it anyway. Why don't you just make this room your altar? Lift hands to him to say, Lord, I give you the situation back. I trust you. I trust you. The Holy Spirit comes to expose what's in our hearts during these seasons of testing so that we can judge ourselves and that we're not judged on that last day. We can pass judgment on ourselves. God, this attitude that I have in my heart. There, there's a lie in your heart that everything relies on you. Oh, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. Just come and give it back to him.
confess, God, this doesn't rely on me. Forgive me for thinking this relies on me. My family, this church, finances, all the things. Finally, just in a a heart of repentance, if, if this morning, if you're hearing this and you're going, you know what, I've never eaten that bread of life. I don't know what it's like to be surrendered to Jesus and you want to surrender your life to Christ. Would you just lift your hand so we can just pray with you, pray for you. I want to give my whole life to Jesus. Surrender my life. Anybody here? Nothing else satisfies, guys. You can run as fast and as hard as you want for as long as you want. Nothing else satisfies. And I just encourage you here, uh, we have five minutes. You take the next five minutes and just meet with Jesus, just as a church family. Make a space in this room, make your seat your altar. Would you just give him back your dependence, your reliance, your passion, your love, your devotion. God, in the place of my need, I look to you. Like the psalmist writes, in a dry and weary land where there is no water, my soul thirsts for you. In the place of distinguishable need, I see the God who fills me. We thank you, Lord. Let's take the next five minutes and just reflect on him.